I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. Before we bring on our guest, we are about to hit the 1,000 show mark. And if you've been listening for a while or for the entire 20 some years and have gleaned tips that have helped you in your writing or life, consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any amount helps us to continue doing what we're doing. We appreciate every penny. Today's show was originally recorded as a Sisters in Crime Orange County panel in November of 2022. The authors are novelists Erica Forensic and Aaron Philip Clark, who talk with me and each other about writing mysteries and thrillers. It was a great conversation. Have a listen. Welcome to Sisters in Crime, Orange County. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and it's good to see so many people. Um, Sisters in Crime is an organization of Um, female and male crime writers and we encourage you to join of course we encourage you to join our chapter is the best I must say Uh, (laughs) absolutely but there are chapters around the country and in a few other countries and so join us there are many perks there are webinars um, on sisters in crime uh, national that are only uh, for members and and lots of stuff going on Um, we also have a YouTube channel where we post events like this one. Um, Our YouTube channel is Sisters in Crime Orange County. If you'd like to know of upcoming events, uh, go to sistersincrimeoc.com and subscribe to our e-list. And our authors today are Erica Forensic and Erin Philip Clark. Um, Erin, Sorry, I'm being, I'm a little disturbed because we can't get all of us on the spotlight and I don't want to be the only one here. Anyway, um, Erica Forensic's literary thrillers feature women who face extreme physical challenges in nature as they grapple with internal struggles. Erica spent weeks in the wilderness of Northern Maine as research for her debut novel, The River at Night. For her follow-up into the jungle, she journeyed a hundred miles up the Amazon and Girl in Ice was inspired and informed by a month-long trip to Greenland, and that's her most recent novel. Erin Philip Clark is the author of the novel Under Color of Law and a screenwriter from Los Angeles. In addition to his writing career, he's worked in the film industry, higher education, and law enforcement. His new novel is Blue Like Me. So welcome you two. I'm so happy to see you and talk with you again. And maybe we could begin with, both of you kind of talking about your current novel and how it came about. Erica, do you want to do you want to start? Okay, so um, yeah, my name is Erica Forensic. This uh, this novel, Girl in Ice, also behind me, is the the logline. Basically, is um, an American linguist is tasked to go to a very remote climate research center off the coast of Greenland, where a a girl has been found in the ice, and the girl has sought out alive, speaking a language no one understands. So there's also a murder mystery in the book, and um, so that's pretty much what has to be solved. Um, I thought of this book. this book sort of combines everything that I that I have been wanting to write in a novel, an Arctic setting, elements of science, elements of linguistics, um, and writing. I like writing along the edge of what is real and what is not, but um, in such a way that hopefully the reader is almost questioning, well, maybe that could be, um, with the most speculative element being that, you know, a human being has thought out alive, so we can't do that yet. Um, but the idea for the story, I was walking behind my home um, near a pond in the winter of 2018. It was freezing, freezing cold. And in the pond, there were 
three juvenile painted turtles and they were frozen solid and they were like frozen mid-stroke, you know? Um, and they didn't look alive, but they didn't look dead either. They looked strange. So I went home and I, I just Googled like, what can, what, can, what can actually freeze and thaw out alive? And it turns out there's all sorts of creatures that can do that. Um, mainly because they possess a certain cryoprotein that we don't possess that protects the cells because when a cell freezes it's like water it's like making an ice cube it becomes sharp and it, and it destroys the cell wall but certain creatures uh, certain salamanders certain fish certain frogs can actually have this so that that started me thinking what about a girl what if a girl was in the ice and for whatever reason she did not die um during this this time. So that's what the story is about. I spent a month in Greenland. I could talk about that. Um, but let's hear from Aaron. I want to hear about his book. <laughs> Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, my book is Blue Like Me. So it's the second uh, installment in the Trevor Finnegan series. So Under Color of Law features Detective Trevor Finnegan and he's an LAPD rookie uh, detective at the time. Now, at the end of that book, it becomes very clear that he can't be a detective anymore. Uh, and so Blue Like Me picks up in 2016. The first book is set in 2014. But we see Trevor is now a private investigator, but he specializes in investigating potentially corrupt police officers. And so he works with an attorney, a civil rights attorney, and they set up kind of a tip line for people who feel uncomfortable reaching out to law enforcement, they could send them this tip, uh, contact them through this email or tip line. And Trevor will go out and, and essentially investigate on behalf of, of everyday citizens. And so um, he finds himself having to investigate his ex-partner and he's hoping that she is not corrupt. Uh, but during that investigation, he goes from private investigator to eyewitness because uh, an unknown assailant uh, attacks his ex-partner and her current partner um, and ultimately kills her current partner and wounds her. So Trevor is thrown into this world that he kind of thought he left behind. He's been operating in the shadows. He doesn't really want to deal with anything law enforcement related besides exposing them. And now he's going to have to partner with his ex-partner Sally Munoz, who may be corrupt, as they work together to tr try and figure out why her partner was killed. And then he becomes even further invested when a family friend is also killed in the same manner. And he uh, realizes that the two murders or homicides may be connected. I have a question for both of you, for specific questions for each of you. And for Aaron, um, I read your last novel, Under Color of Law. We, we were at the LA Times Festival of Books together with that book. And, and Blue Like Me as well, your latest. And your characters, of course, are showing up from Under Color of Law in Blue Like Me. And I was curious when you began, when you wrote um, Under Color of Law, if you knew it was going to be a series. And, and did you plan out character arcs? Did you plan out the dramatic arcs of sort of the entire series? Or how do you do that when you're writing a series? Well, I had a rough sketch. So when I was writing the first book, I had, you know, kind of notions, I guess, of where the characters would end up. The only person I really saw, the only character I saw who was very clear was Trevor Finnegan. And I, and I see him probably existing for about five books. Um, and I kind of know how his, his, his arc will end. Uh, and I wanted to be hopeful. I, 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 I He's becoming a hero. He's not a hero yet, but I think by by book five, um, around that time, he'll be a hero, and I kind of see him having a nice, hopeful ending. But in terms of building on uh, what was established in the first book, I, Sally Munoz is mentioned in the first book. The reason she doesn't help Trevor is because she's actually on maternity leave, um, and then ultimately, this book we actually get to see her as a character. Um, and so I had the notion that he would have some sort of connection with uh, Sally in the in the second book. I just wasn't sure what that would look like. And that's when I really decided to focus on the sacrifices that female law enforcement make, um, because it's quite different. 
especially if you have a you have a family and you're a mother and you have um, and in her case she has a as a husband, uh, but that marriage is falling apart uh, primarily because of her job, um, and that actually becomes the the threat of having her children taken away from her is what really. I, I think pushes her to make the choices that she does within the within the novel. Um, and that kind of came, I think, organically as I started to think more about her character. Is that fun? I mean, is it fun planning out like a number of books? It is. It is a lot of fun. I, I you know, I wish I could say I could plan all five <laughs> and just sit down one weekend and, you know, outline all of them. Um, but you know, in my mind, once I'm writing one, I start to get little hints about what the next, uh, kind of the next installment will be. Um, and Blue Like Me, it ends with a huge hint as to, you know, what the next investigation will be, which would, it'll be a missing person case. So, um, you know, as I was writing that book, I started to get, uh, you know, kind of visions and glimpses of, of the next story. Um, which would essentially pick up directly after uh, the events in Blue Like Me. And, um, you know, I started to kind of think, okay, well, how else can I push Trevor? Because Blue Like Me, I really pile it on in terms of conflict. I, I mean, I, I wrote the book and I feel sorry for the guy. Like, <laughs> you know, he goes through quite a bit. Um, and, you know, I think that's why I need him to kind of go through this gauntlet because I know that it pushes him to be more heroic. Um, and make amends. It gets him opportunities to make amends for the things that he did in the first book that were unsavory and, quite frankly, illegal. Hmm. So yes, it I, is, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you, you, you see, I don't know if you really are, but you seem so uh, wonderfully casual about, um, you know, going from book to book and idea to idea. And I'm just like, I just, uh, you know, I, I just torture myself with, um, well, I torture myself in general. But I mean, just like. <laughs> <laughs> we're writers we love it sort of but um structure and like trying to figure out everything and um that's great that I mean you must write some sort of outline and some sort of character description or something I'm just oh, curious. yeah yeah I definitely mean, right I mean yeah. um you got to know where you're going right because if I don't uh a lot of it has to do with time to be quite honest right. so it saves me quite quite a bit of time if I can at least have a uh, a rough outline. Um, well, as a screenwriter, right? I mean, you must be so used to that sort of discipline. Yeah, that that right. definitely has played a role. Um, and I think you know, I, I mean, when it comes to screenwriting, you know, it's it's oftentimes we're paid by by step contract. So you know, you'll do your treatment, and then you'll you'll kind of show that, and then okay, you get the thumbs up on there, and then you can move to to script and things. So I think I'm. I probably am kind of programmed in that way, um, but you know it, it it depends. Some books I can outline the whole thing, and other books I probably can outline halfway and just figure, okay, the rest of the story will come. Um, or, yeah. you know. or whoever said, you know, um, write as far as your headlights will illuminate. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Someone said that, not me. So I'm quoting, and I think that's really true. I think even when you do outline as much as I do, like. Um, the book I'm writing now, um, sorry, Barbara, I'm just running off at the mouth. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a solid plotter as opposed to a pantser. I think we all know what that means. And um, so with, and I spend about six months or four months uh, outlining. And when I say outline, mm -hmm. I, I mean like, you know, really expansive, you know, fully fleshed out scenes and I know it's going to happen and so on. But like, you know, here I am devoted plotter. And then with this book, I'm like, oh, this, I, I wrote a first draft and it's just something's off, you know, uh, and I, and I, I'm struggling with it now, like it's a whole other bag of worms. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, Erica, I had a question for you and, and yep. that is that your novels are so place oriented. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, do the places inspire you, um, after you travel, or I mean, you travel there, you become inspired, or do you travel to the place that you want to write about? Um, well, yeah, no, and I and I think even in my bio, I think that's 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 a misconception. I I don't have the time or money to go to a place like Greenland and say, oh, maybe I'll have a story idea. You know, there's just no way. Um, 
It's uh, so, and I also think, listen, I know the setting is of course incredibly important, but it's about the story. It's about the people, the story comes first. Um, and uh, so, so for me, this, you know, setting this book in Greenland made all the sense in the world. It's remote, but people sort of know about it. It has an indigenous population um, and, it, and it has kind of the kind of animals I, I needed there. Um, I, I wanted this kind of sense of, you know, closed door mystery. They're in a remote climate research center. Uh, there's any kind of bad wind and no planes can get there. So whatever happens there is, is very, very tense. Um, and this linguist, what's happened to her is her brother who was a climate researcher um, died under mysterious circumstances up in this climate research center. And, you know, one thought is that he took his life and another thought is that um, he was murdered. So um, this setting was, perfect for the story. And again, the story comes first. Um, for, I don't know, for, for The River at Night, which was my debut, which is about four women who go whitewater rafting in northern Maine and lose the raft and have to survive not only the wilderness, but a mother and son who have disappeared themselves for their own tragic reasons. So it's like deliverance with chicks, you know, it's been called, um, kind of thing, right? Um, and so my decision to set it in Northern Maine was, well, for me, perfect because, um, you know, for where I live here, I mean, I don't live in Maine, I live in New England, and it makes sense that someone around here would go up there and find that a good place to have a whitewater rafting adventure. Um, and so that setting made sense for the story. Um, and then this one, Into the Jungle, is actually set in the Bolivian Amazon. And it is, a, it is based on a real person's life who this young woman, uh, she, was, she went down to Bolivia when she was 16, she was sort of disaffected and she didn't come back till she was 26 years old. And mm -hmm. she, had, she fell in love with a Bolivian man. She followed him to his jungle village and she had to survive. So, um, setting of course incredibly important here now um so i i don't you know i certainly don't go to places uh and then write the story I, I think that i think um the way i come up i think the way i think an idea for a novel is just like a precious jewel right isn't it true erin and everyone oh, that's sure. listening it's a precious yeah. jewel and and you know it's difficult you have to vet these ideas you can't just like have an idea and say, okay, I'm going to spend the next five years of my life writing. And it's almost like, it's almost like getting a tattoo, not that I have an air, whatever, but it's like, you don't want to like get drunk and get a really bad tattoo because <laughs> you have it your whole life, right? I it's mean, an investment, yeah. <laughs> it's an investment and it's there, you know? So um, I'll have an idea, like I'll go to bed. I think I have this great idea and then I'll wake up and say, that's the stupidest thing you've ever thought of in your life. So move on. So in other words, I need to have an idea um, and still like it. So after like several weeks, I still love it. If I'm still in love with it, if it's something that has legs that I can relate to, that um, I feel I can write if I don't know the the people, I can do the research. Um, then I will start, you know, working with a three-act structure. I was a screenwriter myself for many years. Um, and that actually, actually I wrote some bad novels and then got discouraged and I wrote screenplays and that taught me structure. And then I went back to writing novels and that's when I started to have some success. And I highly suggest uh, learning, learning that kind of structure. Um, but in any case, I have an idea, I vet the idea and I spend months on an, on an outline that includes character descriptions, snippets of dialogue, whatever comes to me, all the scenes mapped out and then I, I will write the book. But, you know, I, I, I do use setting as a kind of antagonist Definitely, for sure. Um, that's, I think, one of the problems I'm having with my new books. I don't really have, of course, I have a setting, but it's not the direct antagonist to the hero's journey, to the protagonist's journey. So um, I'm 
you know, I got to write about people more than I'm used to writing about people and their struggles. And it's, it's, I, don't you find it ironic that Aaron and everyone here that we hang out with people all day, but writing about people is so damn hard. Like writing, like writing a fully fleshed human being. That's not me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just like, oh no, that's too much like me again. You know, I mean, it's very, it's very, I find it very challenging and it's so it paradoxical, right? It's like, Aaron, we talk to people all day. We, we, we know our family, we know our friends. And yeah, yet. I mean, I, I think sometimes it could just feel like it's um, kind of too close to home, I think, yeah. uh, you know, especially if you're, you're picking up character traits that mirror someone that's close to you. And, <laughs> you know, for me, even though I, you know, I, I talk to folks, um, you know, a lot of my work is remote, so I don't always, right. you know, see people. I probably see people maybe once a week. Oh, <laughs> you know? yeah, no, it's a weird world <laughs> we live in. So it's yeah, so it's very you know it's it's. But you intimate. remember people, you remember them from the distant oh, yeah. past. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you know, I remember people. But, <laughs> so anyway. you know, you brought up something I want to talk to both of you about because you both have, um, you were a screenwriter, you still are a screenwriter, Aaron. Um, so how much do you need to know? I mean you know, how structured, how, how deep is your outline? Do you know the plot points? Do you know the midpoint? Do you know the ending? And what of that is the most important thing? Or is there, I mean, are all of those points important? Or is there, or is it really important to know the ending? Is it really important to know the midpoint? I mean, when you're putting your, your story together, you know, fleshing out your idea, like, how does all that work for you? Aaron, well, yeah. I, I would say that I start with a very rough outline. So what I do, I have a composition books and I basically will say, okay, this is chapter one. And I just focus on the actual actions that are gonna happen in the chapter. I don't really yeah. think much about character motivation, all that. All I know is, okay, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. And I always wanna end that chapter either with some sort of cliffhanger or something that's going to entice the reader to continue to, to, you know, read the book. Right. So that's what I focus on first. And so I'll outline as many chapters as, as, as I can, uh, with the book I'm writing right now, it's broken up into three parts. So, um, it's a little, it's been a little bit challenging because I have to think about the chapters in a little bit different way, um, because it really is about, uh, movements really. Uh, and it's it's also time stamp. So you know the, the part one is is um, you know early two thousand, and then uh, part two is kind of mid two thousand. So um, it, it was a little bit of a different approach, but I think for the most part, I still want to leave room for discovery. So my my outlines um, are incredibly rough, I would say. Really, it's just bullets. I have a bunch of bullet points. Um, if something strikes me when I'm working on it, and I, I want to remember when I go back to actually write the chapter, and let's say I want to remember a particular um, line of dialogue, I'll write it off in the margin. Um, but in terms of characters, uh, the, before I even start the outline, I probably live with the characters for at least three, four months before I even write anything, um, and just think about them, you know, all day. And that's really what how Trevor Finnegan. Um, came to be because I kind of started with this, this question, which was, um, you know, what happens to a police officer who sets out to, I guess, be a good cop or um, take their mandate seriously, but is presented with an opportunity as long as they kind of go along with these other officers, but is presented with this opportunity for career advancement as long as they kind of keep their mouth shut. And would that character necessarily be a bad person? Um, and I started there and I just started to kind of un unravel those layers uh, until I really saw Trevor clearly. And I saw um, his background and I saw, you know, what he would look like and um, how he would carry himself. And then, you know, because of you know, I have background in law enforcement. I was able to decide all different types of things, how he would even hold his gun 
uh, what type of stance he would use. If he graduated the academy at this particular period, um, who were the instructors he might have had um, and or his drill instructor? And how was that environment? Because every class is different depending on who, who your instructors are. So, um, and they focus on different things. So, you know, if it was an officer who graduated in, in the 70s, well, they were trained completely different than how the training is now. So, um, you know, I had to kind of think about those things. And so once I was able to see Trevor clearly, I was able to kind of see the other characters uh, clearly as well, because I thought, okay, well, I need a foil uh, character here. I need a antagonist here and, and maybe perhaps a love interest. And so I just put it together like a puzzle. Well, you know the world so well, obviously. So you, you have that wonderful advantage, you know, of, of setting it in a world that you just know inside and out and have lived even, I guess, in, in some cases, I guess. So that's, yeah. you know, that was, I would say that that'll was make for a better book, you know. It yeah. does, but I also, you know, I've read, I've read police procedurals that have been very, um, when it comes to technical, the technical aspects of policing have been kind of overwrought with it. And I- and Have I, been what? Overwrought? Yeah. That what you said? Uh -huh. Yeah. And I, and for me, it took me out of the story because while yeah. I'm sure it's interesting, um, you know, it is about the story. It's, it's, it's like all that stuff is really great, but it's like, one, if you really are looking for that, I always feel like watch a documentary on, on law enforcement, you know, but you know, for me, it's always been, um, you know, the story comes first and then, you know, if you keep as much as you can as, as authentic, you know, within the story, but also leave room for invention because I had to invent a couple of things and under color of law that are not how we would necessarily do things at all. But for the sake of the story, you know, I, I was kind of forced to, to do things, but I hopefully, I, no one's ever pointed it out, um, even officers who have read it, uh, you know, but hopefully I, I did it well enough where it doesn't yeah. pop out. Oh, that's mm -hmm. odd. Um, well, that's funny because, um, you know, I, and actually all my books, when I think of it, so um, I go to the place, I do the homework, you know, um, and for the River at Night, I, I spent several weeks in the Allagash Territory uh, by myself in the winter, <laughs> interviewing people who live off the grid, men, mm. um, brought my haste. My husband loves these trips that I do, but um, in all my books, I make, I go to the actual place, but I make up the town, you know, I'll make up the town. I even made up the river and no one called me on it, which is bizarre because people called me out on, well, oh, that kind of grass doesn't grow in June and in Maine. And I'm like, dude, get alive. But anyway, so, you know, like that kind of thing. And then into the jungle, you know, I went to, actually I went to Peru um and spend a month in the amazon with a guide but i made up my own tribes you know i i didn't want to get caught out for saying oh you know this particular tribe doesn't have this doesn't do it that way or doesn't have these customs and so on and girl and ice i made up my own i went to greenland but i made up my own island off the coast of greenland because um that said, you know, I, I studied Greenlandic culture. I read everything I could get my hands on. Um, I had a guide who translated, who was my translator, and I got to interview, you know, hunters, um, kinds of folks who who live in Greenland. And Greenland is, uh, it's to this day, a hunting and subsistence culture, which is one thing to know intellectually, and it's another thing to witness in person day to day that you've got to catch your dinner. Not only your dinner, but your 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 sled dog's dinner. So you were because, able to participate in in that aspect of it too. So did you go out and and hunt and I, I did not hunt. I did not hunt, but um I saw a polar bear. <laughs> uh I I camped uh uh, on the ice sheet, but I also camped uh, lower down um, on just this piece of land at the end of this very long fjord. 
uh, and just was able to witness not only the incredible strangeness of this place. I mean, this is um, this island. It's a, it's a, it's the largest island in the world. It's a third the size of Canada, and only 56,000 people live there. So 56,000 people, I live in Framingham, there are 77,000 people here. So think of 56,000 people spread out over a landmass that size. So just to experience just the vastness and the openness uh, and the sort of, I won't say nothing is, but there are, you know, there are no cars, there are no roads. Um, and just to to experience that was amazing. Um, and I think that you yes, you can do so much research online and in books and so on, but there is no substitute for, in my mind, I mean, for the kind of books that I write, I can't bring it to the reader unless I go there. It's yeah. just and 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 this is all I do. So if I want to do the best job I can, you know, um, in the books that I write. And there's just all kinds of surprises, you know, when you go there, the things that you learn, how they hunt, what they hunt. So, I mean, they're, the tastiest meat is narwhal. Second to that's polar bear. Um, mm -hmm. They, yeah, they, they do. Once a polar bear is seen, um, it's as good as, you know, dead. Because it, they're very aggressive bears. They will attack you um and um so they are a threat seen as a threat to towns oh i see um but i was able to interview uh the mayor of this town um who was 70 years old and and who was born in something called a sod hut and a sod hut is up until 1950 people lived in these uh these huts they dug into the ground and the 50 in the 50 day sort of summer season in Greenland, they would dig into the ground when the ground was soft enough, build a roof from whale ribs, caribou skins, rocks and peat and live in there. Four or five families to this tiny, tiny little space. Um, and, and he was born in that and he left when he was seven when people started building just very small simple homes and and I asked him like how did it feel how did it feel to go from this sod hut you know setting to you know you had running water you had electricity and and I was expecting him to say I was overwhelmed with joy and he said I just I I have I will always miss feeling that close to other people I, I have never experienced again. We hunted together, we sang together, we survived together. We um so so it was it was those, those kinds of experiences that uh I, I value, you know, I'll value all my life. And also, I mean, I don't know what we're breathing here, but it's not air because the air in Greenland, it's like oxygen, you know. I was high <laughs> the whole time, just breathing the air. So again, that's just like something else. I don't remember the question at all. Do you, Aaron? What's You're location. <laughs> what is it? Location? Yeah, about location. Location, location, location. <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious about the fact that, that you're writing crime novels. You're both writing crime novels. You're writing in the crime genre, mystery genre. Um, and both of and, and all of your work really kind of leans literary. And that had me thinking about categories and genre. And when you're writing, are you thinking genre? I mean, I know you're thinking about what's at stake and how, you know, to keep this moving. But I don't know, maybe it's more appropriate to ask when you began writing your novels, did you decide on genre or did it sort of take you there? It take you where you ended up? Um, good question. I think with this, with Undercolor of Law, with this Trevor Finnegan series, I definitely knew that it would, um, I saw it as noir. Now, noir is not a, a popular uh, term in publishing because they believe that it, it has a very niche audience. Uh, but for me, it was classic LA noir. Um, 
it was billed as a thriller. I don't know. I'm not even sure if that really fits. But when I sit down to write, um, you know, normally when I'm kind of warming up, I spend time reading something that's completely outside of what I'm writing. Just a whole other. Outside of it? Yeah, just a whole other genre. So because it, it helps me free up my language a little bit. So I'll, maybe mm -hmm. I'll read a book of poetry. Um, you know, I'll read uh, something that, you know, could be billed as, as literary fiction. Um, but, you know, I, I just focus on the story. I try not to get, it's like my agent's job to worry about the genre, sure. you know? <laughs> like, I gotta like leave that, because I just write the story because if I get too caught up in and um, thinking, okay, well, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be seen as this particular genre, that particular genre. Um, when I'm writing, it, it becomes um, frustrating. So I only kind of put that hat on once it's done. And I think, okay, in terms of marketing and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I having spent time, you know, in an MFA program where I was the only one who was writing what you would consider to be, I guess, noir, hard-boiled, and everybody wanted to write the great American novel. And that was like the push. And for me, I just wanted to write a good story. And so, um, you know, that was my focus. It wasn't until my professor was like, oh, well, he's writing crime fiction. And I was like, oh, I am? You know, <laughs> well, that's cool. Tell me more. <laughs> it's like, you know, because my feeling was just like, I wanted to tell, you know, tell this particular story. And, um, yeah. you know, it, was a, it had a lot of existential undertones and and I was reading a bunch of, you know, Russian literature and stuff. And so it was kind of offbeat. And I, I never thought about it being a um, necessarily a crime novel. I mean, I thought it, it if anything, it was closer to noir. But, um, you know, I just, I try not to think in those, in those terms until the book is actually done. Then I go back and I read it, you know, with, with the uh, marketing lenses on. And, I, and I say, okay, well, this is probably how this thing could be pitched and sold, you know. Sure. Erica. Well, so, wow, what a question. Um, so I, I'm a little bifurcated in this whole thing. Um, I did stand up for 10 years and I'm, I, so, and I, I wrote a very funny novel um, that did not sell <laughs> because comedy is hard, you know, death is easy, you know, the whole Woody Allen thing. I think it was Woody Allen said that, but um, it, Comedy is extremely hard in novels. I mean, you know, it, just just comedy in general. Um, everyone thinks they have a great sense of humor, and I don't know. It's just very, it's just very, very difficult. And and um, I think unless you have an active stand-up career going, it's very, very hard to sell a comedic novel. So, but I'm also kind of like schizophrenic, so I'm also like totally into thrillers. I do like really good horror. Um, I'm aware that I'm writing what I am told is is a thriller I mean the crime thing I don't I I have a crime yeah there there's a crime in there but I don't feel like that's the signature event I feel like the signature event is the survival story and it's an adventure and it's got climate change elements and in history um but everything is in service everything is in service of the thriller and suspense elements. You know, I have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks filled with notes about Greenland. And I use, you know, you know what it's like, Aaron, you only use what you need to, to, to create the story. Um, I think that genre, oh, a book I started about a year ago and gave to my agent. She's like, you have to, she's like, call me today. I'm like, oh no, this is not good. So I call her, you know, and I'm like, oh. and she's like, Erica, this is horror. This reads like horror. I'm like, yeah, so. Um, and she's like, you're, that's not your brand. Mm. And I was like, oh, let me, what's my brand? Well, my brand, I guess is, I mean, I have, there are horror elements in, in, here just enough to service the story um and I would never write I just feel like people have asked me how do you deal with comedy what do, what do you what do you how do you feel about comedy in a story I feel like 
humor is part of human experience. If we as writers are, are replicating life in a, in a fashion, not to have an element of humor in the book, I'm not saying jokes, I'm just saying, you know, people who have a sense of humor with each other. Uh, if you don't, if you read a book and it's totally dead like that, you, you will notice it. And I also, by the same token, if there's not an element, there's a lot, I mean, open the newspaper, open, I mean, there's an element of horror in everyday life. There's an element of horror in what happens to us personally or, or sometime will happen in our life. Um, so I feel like it's almost realistic to, to have some element like that. So you ask about genre. So genre is a way that bookstores categorize books and I totally understand. Readers need to, or um, people who purchase books need to know what they're buying. Am I buying an apple? Am I buying an orange? Tell me, don't hide it. So I totally get it. Um, and I, but I do believe uh, that crossover genre is more, more common today than strict genre, straight up genre. I mean, oh. and so, and so the difficulty continues, the complexity continues right on down the line from perhaps a writer pitching a story to an agent and the agent pitching it and trying to sell it right on down the line that the communication has to be clear. Uh, so I understand the difficulty, but I also understand the writerly resistance to mm -hmm. being put into one genre, one thriller, romance, uh, you know, horror, whatever. Um, so that was my little speech about that. <laughs> Well, also, I want to ask you each about your first pages and your first chapters, because, you know, I found them quite gripping and made me want to keep reading. And I'm always curious how much work writers put into that first page, into that first chapter. Is that the most important um, aspect of writing this novel? I mean, not the most important aspect, but the most important part, maybe, or is the ending the most important part, or are they equally important? Well, you know, I would say that first chapter. Uh, so when I teach my students, I tell them to spend considerable time on the first chapter, because that really is where we can find the hook, right? Uh, that's going to get people to continue to read because oftentimes in a bookstore, you know, you open a book and you kind of peruse that that first chapter and you know immediately after the first few sentences if if it's if it's gripping and if you want to continue. Um, and so for me, I look at it as, as a set piece and I say, OK, if I was, you know, in my mind's eye, if I was filming this, you know, and uh, essentially you know, people sat down in a the theater and they, in the first five minutes, I got to make sure that they continue to stick, to stay seated. Right. That's always my, my approach. So that first chapter, I really put um, through many revisions because I wanted to almost grab the reader, you know, kind of by the throat and bring them very quickly into this world that I've created um, and hope that they're going to continue. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a big action sequence or anything like that, but it has to be something where either you, you're, for me, where either I'm revealing something so insightful about the character that really separates the character um, and keeps, it makes the character feel very fresh and interesting where someone will be compelled to continue to read, or it is a scene where I throw the, the, the reader into this world and, and now they have kind of no choice but to continue. You know, I make it so the stakes are incredibly high right away. And, um, you know, if they're invested in, in the characters, then they're gonna continue because they gotta know well, how, how is this person gonna escape or, or you know, how, how are they gonna continue through this story? Um, and so that's kind of, that's, that's my approach. I mean, for Blue Like Me, I knew, um, I knew that I wanted a scene that was going to establish very quickly what Trevor's doing now and how he feels about it and the danger associated. 
I agree with everything you say. And um, I, I do that. I do that too. Just like I love to go to a bookstore, you know, if I can still find one. Um, actually, there are a few more. There are a few around here. Um, and just and and pick out a bunch, like ten books, sit down and read the first three pages of each, and say, you know, just just to get my mind working again and boiling. Um, and it's interesting. It's like sometimes I can I can see intellectually where the the writer the author is. They sort of have hit all the bullets, but I'm not, I'm not gripped. And I think that's just like a person, I'm just not interested in that. I know right away. And I even, sometimes I don't even know how to put it into words, but this is just not the book for me, even though I can see where they've, they've done the homework. So there is that, I think that sort of paradox. Anyway, um, I write, I write my first chapter over and over. I write my, the I work on, I work on all parts of my book over and over, the ending, the beginning, and everything in between. Um, I feel the chap first chapter has to do a ton of work. Absolutely. You need to know who, what, when, where, why. I don't like to start to read and there's a gunfight and I don't know who's going to be killed. And I, I, don't, I don't care enough about the character to care whether or not they're killed, frankly, because I'm not invested emotionally in the character. Um, I think for me, I have to be, um, I have to find, you know, when you're, when we're opening a book or starting to watch a movie, we're looking for the center of good. We're looking for ourselves, you know, we're looking for who we're going to root for. Aaron knows this, of course. And so I need to be able to relate to that person or their journey or their struggle. Um, and again, I, I guess the who, what, why, why, where thing, um, I don't, I don't like to be confused as a reader, and I and um, I confuse quite easily, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, as 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 an author, I like to make things kind of clear right up front, mistakes and so on. Um, yeah, but the first chapter, it's tough because you have to grab people, but they don't know you yet. They don't know your character yet. It is really difficult. Um, uh, and it's a real, real challenge. So yeah, but it's super important. Just like a movie. Like, I don't know. I mean, I have 20 books, you know, in my in my bedroom right now. And I'm, you know, I've just thrown like five of them against the wall because they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? My wall is dented with the books that I I used to think I had to finish the books, you know. No, no, never gonna live long enough. No, not gonna do it. So yeah, make your good, make your first chapter sing. Yeah, we have a few. We have a few minutes left, so please post any questions in the chat. I have one actually that was emailed the other day for Aaron, and <clears throat> it has to do with the LAPD because <laughs> the LAPD is very problematic in your books, and so actually it's a two-part question. One is, and you said that officers have read your books, and I'm curious what the reaction is. And um, the the other the question that came in was um, goes like this: My book club recently discussed your book, Under Color of Law, which we loved, and we were wondering if you believe there is hope for the LAPD. Can it change? So, two part question. That's a good question. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first part. I've never had an officer tell me that I exaggerated anything. Ooh. I've had officers who come from different departments, maybe cities that don't necessarily, are, are not necessarily plagued by some of the things that Los Angeles is plagued by. Um, but when it comes to the actual job, I've never had officers say, you know, that, that it doesn't ring true. I mean, if anything, I've had officers um, from other, uh, departments within the state. I've had officers from um, other states uh, and even on the federal level uh, who have retired, who have said, uh, you know, that they really, really understood and um, felt that it was the one of the most authentic uh, depictions of law enforcement that they that they had read. And I think it's, it's not so much about authenticity being the technical aspects or, you know, focusing on, you know, the type of um, 
type of firearm or focusing on the report, the specific report that's written because they all have numbers and or penal codes or something like that. But what they're, I think what they're getting at is, is more of the psychological toll that the job has. And um, it was very important because I hadn't read many novels that focused heavily on that, um, of the toll that's taken uh, and, and the amount of sacrifices that, that officers um, have to uh, contend with, you know, because it's about time. You're talking about a, a job that consumes, you know, 80% of your time. And how do you have a normal life when, you know, especially if you're robbery homicide, when people keep getting killed, you know, you're never done. And there, there unfortunately is a, um, you know, very high rate of suicide, even after, when officers retire, um, you know, obviously alcoholism, some of these are tropes, but some are true. Um, alcoholism, incredibly risky behavior um, that officers uh, partake in. I had a, had a training officer who, um, enjoyed to, I guess, kind of like prize fighting, wasn't very good, would show up battered, everyone acted like it was normal, you know, um, but whatever that individual was working out in the ring, um, you know, he needed that, uh, but he was addicted to, we, they used to call him to the canvas, because he spent all his time on the canvas, they would say, you know, they would have all these jokes about, um, you know, the fact that he wasn't a good boxer, but he, oh my goodness, he wouldn't oh. stop, you know. Um, so those I have to read this book. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> well, the, is it gonna be a movie? I'm sorry, is it gonna be a movie, Aaron? Or, or uh like, we're working hopefully for the TV adaptation. So oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, so, That's awesome. Oh that my is, god. That is the plan. Um but but yeah, you know, though that's what interests me about about law enforcement. Really, it's the human, it's the human cost. It's the yeah. is that aspect of it. Well, is there, so is there hope? Was, what's the other part of the question? Yeah, so in terms of hope, I think so. I mean, I, I'm a hopeful person. So I think that um, there's always gonna be hope there, but I think it's only going to come when the department recognizes its role in that the, the role that is played in Los Angeles history. And, you know, and it's interesting because if you go to the LAPD museum, you know, it's a celebration to all the wonderful things, right? Uh, or I shouldn't say wonderful, but all the the the, the accolades, the good things, the yeah, accolades. you know, yeah. that have come out of the department. So you can go there and you can see um, uh, the North Hollywood bank robbery, which was famous and inspired heat. You can go and and see that display, right? And you could see the body armor and all these things. The fact that these officers did courageous and heroic things to to stop these two individuals. Um, but what's missing is really the history that, that the history of the department and its role in really helping to shape a city that is incredibly segregated, um, a city that has had many, many issues in terms of race relations and many riots and, and, uh, and social upheaval because of many of the policies that exist. And so the, L the LAPD played a great, uh, you know, a great role in a lot of that. You look at like, you know, historical events like the Zoot Suit Riots where they were actually used almost as like security and, and beat up these kids who were wearing Zoot Suits and, and helped, you know, the, the Navy sailors who were drunk to beat up these, these Chicano kids in the neighborhood. Um, and it became a whole, a whole riot. So, you know, it's, it's, and I never received that part of the history in the, in the academy. Again, it was only kind of the celebratory, hey, this is yeah. how great progressive we are. And I think if you really want to have a department that is going to focus on community policing, then it has to look at its role that is played um, in terms of the, those communities and you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think it has to be incredibly transparent. And I don't think we're, we're there yet. Um, I think you know, under the right leadership, maybe one day they will be. Uh, but, you know, we have to be kind of, you know, not kind of, we have to be incredibly honest when it comes to our, our police departments and hold them at an incredibly high standard um, because, I mean, they have great power. Uh, mm -hmm. They will incredible power. And um, it's not the kind of job where you can have a bad day, truthfully. 
Uh, you know, you have to be able to compartmentalize that. And I don't know, you know, when we hear officers who get in trouble, I don't know if that is being um, reinforced. I mean, you get it in the academy, but is it the type of training that's constantly reinforced? Because it has to be, you know, pilots have to keep getting, uh, you know, have continual training. Um, You know, you can't have a bad day when you're, you know, you've got thousands of passengers that need to get to where they're going. It's the same thing. Thank you. And a question, a question for both of you, and we have just a couple of minutes left, and that is, um, how, what role does theme play in your work? Um, are you thinking theme? Are you letting that up to the reader? Um, does it ever figure in in any way in your writing? Uh, Erica, you you can take that. Okay, I'll go. No, um, so. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Aaron. That was just good. Um, so I think theme for me sort of comes around on the backside. I I thought of many themes as I was writing this that were in the book. Grief, how pe- different people deal with grief. Um, uh, ambition, um, climate change, how people treat each other. I don't, I don't go out looking, I really don't go out looking for theme. I think, I think as you start to write something along a book length project, theme is, theme's gonna, themes are gonna show up on their own. Um, I never, it's so funny with all the planning. So it's such a good question because with all the planning I do and all the thinking that I do, I don't say, okay, what are my themes? Um, I think if you have a story, a powerful story, a story that feels powerful to you, that's full and rich and, and you know, things happen on the outside and characters go through emotional journeys. Oh, wow. Your theme is going to be right very at your fingertips. Um, I think story story produces theme naturally. It's if it's a if it's a if it's a good story, if it's a well thought out story. What do you think, Aaron? Oh, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, do you go ahead? Do you start with theme, or do you? No, no, no I right. I, I yeah, I don't know. I'm not I'm not that sophisticated. That's why I'm not a poet. Like, I'm not a deep enough yeah. to be a poet, you know. Not yeah, it's like I, I, yeah. I just don't think in that way. Yeah. But I will yeah. say it does emerge out of out of story, and it normally comes um, for me maybe three chapters in is when it becomes crystal clear. And I think for for Under Color of Law, I realized as I was writing early on that it really was about the impact of trauma and generational yeah. trauma, especially for. Um, you know, starting with Trevor's um, father, and then how he raised him, and then, you know, the fact they're both in law enforcement, and how um, being exposed to constant triggers of this trauma prevents them from being able to heal, and that really is what emerged in the, in the, in the first book, and for the second book, uh, I realized early on, I think maybe this might have been, and by the time I hit chapter two, I said, okay, I, I get it. This is very much about um, toxic relationships. Uh, uh, and some of the most toxic ones can be between um, uh, law enforcement and their, and their partner. So um, I kind of saw that very clearly. And I, I related it to some of the training that we had in different case scenarios we were given where officers had done things and ultimately were on their way to being fired. And when they asked, well, why did you participate in this? And the person would say, well, my partner was doing and as, as elementary as that sounds, you know, you know it, no, I get it. I, I can imagine it's really that. what it was, you know, it was just the fact that that they they had become one. They couldn't see themselves as individuals because they, mm-hmm. it was this is my partner. My partner's doing it. I'm doing it. And, um, you know, a lot of officers yeah. had, had found themselves in hot water simply because they went along with something. And, and maybe in the beginning, they thought it wasn't a good idea. But unfortunately, yeah. over time, they they acquiesced and they went along with it. When you were talking about um, to how the LAPD museum you now just shows the good part or whatever, it's just, it sounds like war. It's like, you know, we, we glorify the elements of war that are, you know, we, we want to glorify, but the real 
the truth about war is 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 hideous. Yeah. I'm not saying you know the police department. You know what I'm saying, right? I mean, just yeah, yeah. It's a you know the it's a war between evil and good, I guess. You know, forever and ever because of human nature, which is mm -hmm. always going to um, produce that sort of conflict. Yeah. Right. Well, I so appreciate you both being here with us today, and I'm Thank sure we you. all appreciate you being here for this conversation. And, and we Thank will you. get it up on the YouTube channel. So if anybody missed a part of it, you can check it out in the next week or so it'll be up there so i just want to thank you and thank everybody for it was wonderful thank you thank so you much. this has been great before we go i want to remind you of two things one is my youtube channel is barbara demarco barrett a few of the interviews i do here that we record with video on as well as audio are posted there this conversation you'll find on YouTube at Sisters in Crime, Orange County. Thanks to all of you for loving books and for taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify, free to you, called Just My Type. If you want to get in touch with me, please email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, and uh, stay in the chair. Bye.